Hello, I'm Julie Swenson, Managing Director of Forward Theatre Company in Madison, Wisconsin. And I'm Mike Fisher, Milwaukee-based theater writer and dramaturg. I'm Jen Upoff-Gray, Founder and Artistic Director of Forward Theatre Company. And this is Theatre Forward, a twice-monthly conversation about theatre from a local, regional, and national perspective. From Madison to Manhattan, we're excited to share insight into our own company while exploring issues surrounding theatre in the Midwest and around the country. Welcome to episode 61 of Theater Forward. All right, 61. So this is going to be our latest installment in our ongoing series of conversations with wonderful artists about the plays that stay, these productions that have really stuck with them over the years. Dr. Baron Kelly is an actor, director, and educator who has worked all across the United States. He's now a professor at UW-Madison, and we are lucky enough to have him direct our upcoming production of Mom, How Did You Meet the Beatles? by Adrian and Adam Kennedy. Well, you know, I was uh, thinking about this on the plane uh, last night again. When I was 10 years old, um, I used to sing in uh, with the, you know, the, the chorus during assembly. And I went to a very multicultural uh, school, elementary school um, in Manhattan. And two of my friends who Greek were getting ready to audition for the Metropolitan Opera the children's course. And I didn't know anything about the opera. You know, my father listened to jazz records and all that anyway. So during, you know, parent teacher conference time, my mother came up and the teacher said there was an opportunity for me. And um, my mother came home and asked me if I wanted to audition and, you know, and try out. And so I, all I knew is I wanted to be with my friends. I didn't know anything about the opera. So my mother put a little clip on tie and a white shirt on me and <laughs> looking at Craig and, um, shower, shower. <laughs> and um, went down, stood in line with all the other children and parents. And then it was my turn to go in the room and the great Zubin Mehta, the conductor was in there with one of the rehearsal pianists. And they said, what am I going to sing? And I said, I'm going to sing America. That's what I knew. And I sang the heck out of that song. Two weeks later, I got a postcard in the mail saying that I had been accepted in the children's chorus with the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. And that's where the sawdust went up my nose for the theater. Spectacle, being 10 years old, learning all of those different languages, Spanish, you know, French, Italian, you know, whatever. Uh, I was in about four or five shows. The, the security guards used to chase me and my friend Chris. One of my other friends uh, made it. The other guy didn't. But Chris Kalfian and I, they used to chase us around the building, the Met, because we used to go into the break into the, well, break in. We used to get into the costume shop and steal all the bald pates from the monks and all that, you know. And, um, oh my God. And, you know, I wear glasses. So before I would go out on stage, they had to take my glasses off, right? But I do remember that first instance of going on that stage and the lights hitting me. And, you know, the blocking was one thing because, you know, it's, it's fine. But the vastness of the Met and the lights hitting me 
and all of that sort of stuff. And so that's, that's pretty much where it started. I think that, that as a matter of fact, I know that's where it started. And the operas that I did, you know, I love listening to classical music. So that's a part of my DNA, you know, besides being a musician. So that's, that's my story, actually. Is that something? Oh, that's amazing. How, how long did you, did you do that for? Two years. Oh. Carmen, Ta- Tosca, La Giaconda, Hansel and Gretel. You know, I mean, whenever I hear Carmen, you know, <laughs> I wish our podcast <laughs> listeners could see our faces right now. That is really a unique story. So many people get started on, you know, the community theater or like their third grade show at the cafetorium. And you you got to sing at the well, back. Well, That's here's, amazing. Here's something that I learned after the fact. The great Maria Callas went to the same elementary school. Oh. Oh, wow. Because I was reading her one of her, a, a biography about her, and she said she went to PS 189, and I was like, <laughs> you know, so that neighborhood at that time, you know, was wonderful, you know, with all of those different people and stuff, right across from the cloisters up in upper Manhattan, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. That's so believe me, I know how important the arts are. <laughs> When people talk about children, I believe me, I know I'm a big advocate for that. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love any story that reclaims the sort of populist origins of, of, of opera, which just gets like so much like Shakespeare with, with straight theater. I mean, I'm I'm so tired of things that get turned into these highfalutin, you know, preserves of the knobs and they're not, I mean, opera is something that should be and was, and forever out, forever will be if people take it the right way, something that's for everybody and that it appealed to your 10 year old soul on some level after you got into it just is awesome. Um, I mean, certainly during, you know, the past 16 months, you know, with BLM and a lot of other things, I've listened to a lot of classical artists uh, of color and talking uh, about, you know, their discipline. And I've even listened to Leontine Price and others, uh, George Shirley talking about this. And we're just living in a different time right now. Um, I, I don't know. It's just, I, I'm glad that I had that experience when I did and that my sensibilities were formed at the age of 10 years old with all the different friends. I mean, I went to shul. I visited, I went to shul with my friends when I was you know, 11, 12 years old, you know what I mean? So I grew up around everybody, but that's my experience. And a lot of other people don't have that kind of experience. So I was very, very fortunate. My father was a construction worker. He worked with a crew of guys, 25 years. They were first generation Irish, Italian, German. Those guys didn't go to college. They drank hard. They smoked a lot. They argued with their wives. But one thing that was instilled in us kids was, a sense of doing what you need to do for the family, you know? So yeah, I've been very fortunate all my life. Very fortunate. Mary McDonald Care is a Milwaukee-based actor and director. Forward audiences know her as the director of Mary Jane and for her role as Emily in the lifespan of a fact. Good morning. 
Um, I'm here to talk about my incredible experience directing West Side Story at Hope Rep in the summer of 2019. And um, I'm probably going to cry a couple of times even talking about it. Um, so it's 2019, pre-COVID, pre-George Floyd, pre-protests, pre-election. But in the midst of some pretty ugly conversations and experiences in this country about immigration, Puerto Rico itself was recovering from, uh, trying to recover from the devastation of the couple Irma and Maria that uh, really devastated the country. And Lenny Banavez, the artistic director, um, and this was before the Broadway revival, this was before the movie. Um, Lenny wanted, always does a musical, you know, Hope Rep was just starting under his leadership and he thought he would like to have a production of West Side Story that um, was mostly about, um, not so much about Romeo and Juliet, not so much even necessarily about race, but about immigration and us and them and Americans versus others. And um, he set out to, he traveled all over the country to cast incredible people. He's, he's, he's an amazing person when it comes to hunting down just the most talented people that come work for him. It's kind of amazing. And because the cast is, you know, 99% young people, the cast ended up being mostly MFA students. Um, and then I came in and I, I don't know if many people know this about me, but I do direct musicals and it's really just my favorite thing to do is to direct musicals full of young people because the drug of youth and music, live music is just, it, I can barely stand it. And um, I had directed Urine Town and Mother Courage at Carthage and um, was just kind of beside myself to be asked to come to Westside. And I was raised on Broadway musical soundtracks in my home and I knew every note of the whole, uh, the whole piece. And, you know, Westside has so much music in it. It was really kind of cutting edge at the time with all the connected tissue music and all the music that, that was, you know, underscoring dialogue and um, was so orchestral and, and, and unbelievable. And um, I, we wanted to like, you know, scrub off all the barnacles and make it back to its more original intent of being a play that, yes, the Romeo and Juliet thing to hang your hat on, but it's it's so much more than that. I mean, r &J is about a couple of rich families that have a feud and West Side is about race and poverty and class and, um, and, and sharing and greed. And, you know, there's the, 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 the stakes are so much higher in my estimation. And we did a lot of research about this real legitimate historical time in the country where, you know, between 1945 and 1955, like half, of, literally half a million Puerto Ricans came from Puerto Rico to live in New York City. So the second generation European kids that had staked out their neighborhoods and it was already super crowded suddenly had 500,000 people who didn't look like them and didn't speak their language trying to also live there. And the fact that they were actually Americans didn't really count for much because <laughs> it wasn't really immigration because they're all United States. But that and they and they literally started murdering each other. The, the um, It was we're kind of used to it now, but that whole forming of gangs and 
fighting, not for drugs, not for money, right? Just for their little piece of ground, because that's all they had, because everyone was poor. And so we really wanted it to look that way. You know, the kids, we did a lot of research in the photographs. Everyone was kind of dirty and grubby and worn out and looked older than their years. And so our design was that. And so I came in um, excited and thrilled beyond measure and, and looking back kind of arrogant about how I was going to teach this group of people all this stuff about these, you know, our history and, and, and the evils of racism and classism and immigration being the old white lady that I am. And um, we started rehearsal and please know throughout this story that we all know no love was ever lost. Everyone stayed in love with each other. We ended up on the end better, all of us better for it and had a remarkable production. But the layers that had to get discussed as we proceeded through this were treacherous. And, um, you know, first we started talking about the dynamic of the actual time in history. Then because of that, you know, Lenny worked very hard to, um, to pass a very diverse cast and a very authentic cast. We had African-Americans playing jets, which you might not necessarily think about, but that, made a dynamic that was very, we had to really get our brains around that. Um, and so we went from talking about historically to the experience of these young people in the world today. And then we would butt up against the experience in the rehearsal room with each other in biases uh, of the cast. And then the safety of a bunch of young people trying to really inhabit people who have terrible instincts about race and are saying, you know, the, cat, the, the script of the Broadway show, the original Broadway show, is much spicier than the movie, you know, the original movie. There's a lot more discussion and open discussion. And, um, and so creating a safe space for young people to go, discovering their inner hateful person to be able to sling slang at each other and and you know nasty words at each other and have that be safe and then they needed to eat lunch together and then you know and then maybe in a different play together because it was in rep and then then the discovery of the things that i now cringe about things that you know i walked in the door going i'm a fantastic ally and i'm an old person who knows more than you and and having to face stuff like that and even in the moment I discovered some of my own stuff and was taught about my own stuff, but even now, three years later, I'll remember something and go, oh my God, I, you know. And then the conversations of the race and theater and what are the producer's obligations about picking pieces and casting and how much power does a brand new baby actor at age 20 have when they see something or experience something that's not, that's uncomfortable. And can I raise my hand and say, this is what, what's happening. You probably don't know why this is a bad thing that's happening and taking those kinds of chances and making sure that that avenue is available. So we're having this, you know, remarkable experience of all these different <laughs> things. And I'll tell you just a couple tiny little, um, Specific examples, 
because I don't want to tell anybody else's story. So I'm not going to tell you like about other things, but a couple of tiny little examples were there's an African-American young man who was a jet. And we had only six people in each gang, right? Because it's low money. So we didn't have enormous gangs. So um, the characters got, the lines got doled out to um, the people who weren't actually in it. Then the people who weren't in it anymore, their lines were given out to the rest of the gang. And in the scene where Anita's being abused in Doc's drugstore, um, it turns out that the that this young man had the line about passing. She says, please let me pass. And he says, oh, you can pass. And it's this reference to passing for white, really. That's what the intention of the line was. And he came to me and said, I don't want to say this line. It's so racist. And then several other people raised their hands and said, yeah, there's so many lines in this play that are so racist. And I was like, well, what we're trying to do here is be a mirror to the audience of this bad behavior, right? We want to amplify and show people this, these things so their, their familiarity with them strikes a chord that, oh my gosh, we're still thinking this way, or oh my gosh, we're still treating people this way, or oh my gosh, I said that just the other day. And the, the young people were just like, no, we got to cut all the racist stuff. And at first I thought, oh, they're so naive, we need to do this. And then I thought, no, that is so hopeful. It's so hopeful that to them, the cure was so simple. Just get rid of it. That's, we, don't, we won't tolerate that. And, and so having that discussion and then this discussion went further as to, well, I, as a black boy, would never say that. And I found myself saying, oh, well, you might, because maybe you would be more familiar with even the, the treachery of passing and how what a bad thing that would be and how like you're willing to insult her. So you would say this horrible thing to her. And he kind of nodded and went away. And now I look back and go, who the hell am I to tell him what his what he would have done, what any black person would have done in that situation. And he finally came to me like in the middle of tech and said, I cannot say this line with my mom and dad. And I was like, well, you won't. <laughs> and we figured out somebody else to say it, but it really took him, it, it took him begging me for me to hear what he was really saying. And he took a big risk coming to me to say that, you know, and I'm glad that he felt comfortable saying that. And another example was that, um, so the list of names of the, of the, who's in the guts and the charts are all wacky. And some of them are kind of racist and like, there's a character of a jet who's called Arab and we didn't have one because we only need six. And I just was like, let's get rid of that one. Cause that's so jarring to hear that. And in my mind, this list of sharks names were just these Spanish words, right? <laughs> Cause I was, didn't do my homework and, you know, close to opening a young man came to me and said, my name in the, um, my name in the play is basically the N word in all Hispanic. And it was Indio. And I thought, doesn't that mean Indian? He said, yes, technically it means that. But what it means when people hurl it at each other is that you're the lowest of the low when it comes to any sort of hierarchy. And it's a really big slur. And it's only used to hurt people. 
and it shouldn't be in here. And I was like, well, you can have any other, go to the list, have pick a name, pick a name you want from the list. And the programs are already printed. And he was like, my family's going to see my name in this, is that I'm playing this thing. And, and I said, I'm so sorry. And then I was like, I should have done my homework. I should have done my homework. I didn't do my homework. And, and, and there was some choreography in America about the bullets flying that was kind of lighthearted. And my director brain, as I was watching them learn that dance number was, you know, do they know it? Can they do it? We're under a time crunch. That two seconds went flying by. It was some of this lighthearted bullets flying. And somebody came to me and said, you know, this fleeing the bullets flying, we were fleeing like a revolution. It's kind of like, it was like a refugee situation where there was, there was violence and people being murdered in a political revolution. So that kind of like treatment is hard. And so it's just little thing after another. And finally, the biggest thing that hit me was we were having a group meeting and we were talking about airing stuff. And there was a, a, a mention of the word authentic. And somebody said, well, you know, we really appreciate that there's so much diversity and this is a chance to employ so many Latinx actors and that and everything. But don't you got to stop kidding yourself that this is in any way authentic because it was really written by three old white guys. You know, and I was like, oh. You know, and so not to take anything away from the beauty and the value of West Side Story, it is glorious, but it was really I just learned so much. And in the midst of all these, this pain, we got to do West Side Story, right? <laughs> we got to then have these conversations and then rehearse the dream ballet and sing There's a Time for Us with, you know, 40 young kids. And I would just weep at the table and they would all laugh at me. Um, so I really, the whole experience was just phenomenal. And I have held them in my heart in the subsequent, years since then of what's happening and how their young professional lives have been stalled and um and and hopefully things will be different and better when the uh, machine gets up and running again but i'll never forget it um, i i think that the the rehearsal of the play allowed so much of that stuff just to seep into my pores in a way that intellectual conversation never would have and um it's truly a gift, truly a gift. Mary, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> I mean, it's the, it's it's what we all strive for, right? It's not about doing everything right and knowing everything out of the gate. It's about being open to learning mm-hmm. and, and carrying that learning forward. And learning that be- you have stuff to learn. Learning that you have stuff to learn. Mm-hmm. Right, and I feel like we've made great strides and then it took, you know, it took last year for people to finally get maybe thinking along those lines. And I was so much more ready to learn more than I would have been without that. You know, I wasn't. It's also, you know, the, the, the beauty for me is you're talking about preserving in the midst of this and the way that it needs to be preserved an older piece of our culture. There is a space for West Side Story. There's a space for the musicals you grew up on. There's a space for Shakespeare. It's it's learning how to have the kinds of really difficult conversations that you had and great work in whatever era it was produced can still speak to us when you have directors like you who are as open as you obviously were um, to, to help us 
understand in a new way what these pieces can be all about. That's so inspiring to me to hear that. Yeah, Mary, I was surprised. You know, I've I've seen you on stage for decades, <laughs> and uh, and I love that this was the story you chose <laughs> to tell. How how wonderful! And I do think it's probably a um, you know, that could be a whole podcast of what what do these these older musicals, these older plays, how do they resonate with us now? How do our contemporary ears and hearts? feel about it and um and the value of of doing that fantastic thank you it was great to be able to tell the tale susan sweeney is an actor and teacher and was a longtime vocal coach at american players theater she's also well known for her work on wisconsin public radio's chapter a day series welcome susan thank you very much it's so wonderful to be here so I want to share with you uh, a rather extraordinary moment. Uh, I feel very blessed to have had this experience. I'm not quite sure what to call it, but we'll call it theater. And it was theater of a very particular kind. Um, I We had uh, in the professional theater training program, which was both at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and the University of Delaware, and from which many people, many actors, uh, people around here might recognize, did graduate and get their MFAs. Uh, in, I think it was 1996, um, we used to have a German director named Heinz-Uwe Haus, who would direct productions of Brecht for us. And uh, in a way that few other than uh, other than great German directors would understand doing Brecht. Uh, and this particular production was started at the at the school where I was teaching. And um, we then uh, he raised all of this money to get it brought to Germany. And we performed. I, I then went in as as Mother Courage um, for this production and we performed it in the most extraordinary place that an anti-war pl play could ever be performed which was uh, this cruise missile base that had been a united states cruise missile base in southwestern germany in a vacation area in the Husenrich, uh district uh, which was a gorgeous area of mountains and rivers and we brought this production, this very strong anti-war production of Mother Courage into that cruise missile base. And it was uh, scenically about as extraordinary as you could ever imagine. So being involved just on that level was remarkable. We didn't have any money to make a big spectacle, but it was a spectacle done on a shoestring. He got the this base, which had been vacant for a long time, he got it opened up for this uh, occasion, for this production, which we ran for almost a month there, daily, uh, nightly. And um, it was it was done uh, about, in a way, I think in a way that Brecht would have been proud of. The audience was not allowed in and, and kept in a pen and then allowed in. And as soon as they got in the gate, of this extraordinary place, the Mother Courage's wagon came down the road. So this base is acres and acres, hundreds of acres of roads, towers, and mostly these 
concrete bunkers covered with earth. And in the interim of uh, years, probably since that base had been occupied by the US military, um, the nature had taken over. So those bunkers were covered with garlands of yellow broom and lupin and all of these gorgeous, gorgeous pieces of the natural world coming to inhabit and cover up what had been there. Uh, he had hired artists to make paintings and the paintings were draped off of these bunkers all through the base. The audience followed the action for the first half of the play. So we did the first scene in front of them, then Mother Courage's wagon takes off and they follow. And we ended up at another little building and the next scene took place and the next scene. And then finally, as the action begins to compress, there were scenes that were taking place outside of these concrete bunkers where the cruise missiles had been housed at one time. And they were hauntingly, hauntingly scary. Uh, and then there was one scene that took place in front of a bunker with the door closed. And as the scene ended, ended the uh, door, this huge metal clanking metal door raised and the audience was directed to go through and into that tunnel. And the next scene took place on the other end of the tunnel, which had been opened up. Uh, they were outside the tunnel. And at the end of that scene, uh, the doors clanked shut. Like, a, you know, you can imagine this cr crashingly metal sound and that happened right behind them. So all of this was happening the first act. They would follow the wagon and scenes would take place. And we had a little uh, electric piano that was on, on a wagon that was following behind Mother Courage's wagon so that when songs happen, this, piano was there with a musician playing it. And uh, then they were invited, then the audience was invited into a bunker for a hot beverage. This was spring in a mountainous region. So it was quite cold. And the Germans all brought these big bags of rain boots and umbrellas and, and outerwear as it got colder and colder during the evening. The lights were done from a conning tower. Our lighting designer had been able to get enough electricity to actually light these vicinities. Um, then the second half of the play took place in front of the audience sitting in bleachers. So the cast of 10, 15 people, I don't remember how many we had, would be coming and going in front of them. And then there would be scenes that would happen at, you know, 50 yards away, 100 yards away. And the, the climax of the play is Katrin, Mother Courage's daughter, um, is killed and um, and Mother Courage, for anyone who might not remember this play, Mother Courage is a mercenary. She's following the armies and she's making money off of whatever she can possibly make money off of. And that includes using her children in whatever ways she needs to, to do that. It's, it's, a, it's a horrifying character and um, and Uva House understood how horrifying. So there was, it was completely ugly. Katrin's uh, death was done on the little bitty house that housed the warheads for the cruise missiles, the nuclear warheads in that house. On the roof, you suddenly see Katrin standing and there's a scene that goes on around that. And then she is, there's a gunshot and she falls off the roof so that the audience can't see where she falls. She fell into a net 
And then her body is scurried those hundred yards to in front of the bleachers where Mother Courage and her wagon are. And she's laid out on the ground and Mother Courage in a horrifyingly cruel scene, strips her body of clothing, shoves the clothing into the back of the wagon. And at that moment, maybe 150 yards away, the army is going by. And she screams, wait for me. And she grabs the tongue of the wagon and there's no one to haul it but her now and takes off after the soldiers. And that was the end of the play. It was just, it was an extraordinary thing. And because it was not a spectacle, a spectacle that was done with any kind of, um, any kind of trappings, it was done on a shoestring. Uh, it was, it was really live theater somehow, even with those sort of cinematic um, elements going on. But I think the most extraordinary thing was how the place was somehow naturally beautiful. All this horror was going on in a place that had been protested for months by the uh, German war, anti-war protesters. They were always out there when, when the Americans were there and all of the cruise missiles were there. There were protests every day and some of them very very ugly. And there was graffiti all over the walls of this compound. So it was both ugly and beautiful at the same time. And somehow the German audiences, I've never experienced audiences like that, even at APT where the generosity is overwhelming. The, there was something about these people who would sit there for it was a four hour production by the time all of this happened, would sit there and then rise for, you know, standing ovations and six curtain calls and, and sometimes in the rain. Uh, I, so it was both learning that culture about theater because we had seen plenty of theater while we were there, but it was also their, their response to something in not their language um, but about as theatrically fascinating and compelling, I think, as you could possibly be with a with a topic that belonged somehow in that place. That's why I can't forget it. <laughs> I, I'm not going to forget that story, Susan. No. <laughs> well, I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking of this in comparison with what I heard Laura say about the the production work she saw in Russia, which was mm. so theatrical and so subtle, gorgeously subtle. This there was nothing subtle about this. Well, correct. <laughs> Jim Pickering was talking about that. Those were those were theatrical moments that I would recognize as theatrical moments in my understanding. This was beyond beyond i've i've never experienced anything like this before it or after it wow. the imagery of the flowers like as soon as you start talking about that i just kept thinking you know i grew up with you know hippie parents right so where have all the flowers gone and the gravestones go back to flowers at the yeah that's all i could think of from the moment you yeah. said that yeah it, it well, was i'm just thinking. perfect yeah, you know, just we we need a good production of this play in Wisconsin so bad. I mean, I've been lobbying Brenda at APT about this forever. And you, Mike. it's it's just so it's such a great play. And you know, we'll, we'll never do something that's as good as what you just described, but 
but I'll take anything that's a step up from the uh, the productions I've seen, which just don't capture even a, a fraction of what you've just described. You've given me goosebumps. So, and what what Uwe House understood about Brecht was how ugly it could be, and then suddenly how heartbreaking. I, I it, it was extraordinary to be working with a director like that 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 so got those all of that. All of that meshed together. I, it was it was really beyond anything I've ever experienced. So Joe Hanready is well known to Wisconsin audiences uh, as an, a director and adapter who has done long stints as artistic director of both Madison Rep and the Milwaukee Rep. Um, forward audiences will know him having made his directorial debut in this crazy pandemic year with his direction uh, online of Lifespan of Effect. Well, uh, you know, the theme is uh, the play that stayed. So uh, I have been fortunate to <laughs> live a long time and seen a lot of plays and, and, and uh, traveled and seen a lot of things. But I, I, I thought I would uh, go maybe all the way back to almost the first play I ever saw. Um, and, and that was fairly late in life. Uh, I actually didn't see a play until I was 20. Uh, and uh, out of high school and uh, theater had not been part of the culture of my uh, family. All, all I knew really about the theater was watching movies about plays like All About Eve and <laughs> things like that. So, so it, it didn't seem like something that really um, I, I, I might connect with. But um, I, uh, you know, was... Uh, taking some night school classes, trying to stay out of getting drafted to Vietnam and, uh, and doing various jobs in the San Francisco Bay Area where I grew up. And the guy, a guy I was working for, um, who was doing renovations in buildings in, in San Francisco and uh, in Berkeley, uh, and I was mostly just cleaning up the job site <laughs> and trying to keep going. Uh, one day said, how would you like to go to a play? Uh, you know, my wife and I have tickets to uh, a play at the Gary Theater and uh, we can't go and uh, I can't find anybody else to go. Why don't you find somebody and go see this play? Well, I didn't know anybody to take, but uh, and I had only seen one other play and it had been at the Gary Theater. And it was a traveling production of a murder mystery called Hostile Witness featuring Ray Milland. And the only reason we went to see that play is my uncle Jack had come back from Texas, who had done very well and wanted to show uh, my mom, his uh, sister, a good time in San Francisco. So we went to a fancy dinner and a play. Nobody knew anything about it. It was the most artificial thing I'd ever seen. Uh, but I was kind of amazed at the power of Ray Milan standing in front of a whole bunch of people and commanding, you know, 900 people. I have to say I was impressed with that. But when I went to see the second play, it was in the first season of the American Conservatory Theater at the, the same at the same theater, the Gary Theater. And um, so I went and I, I gave my extra ticket to somebody that I saw in the student line. Uh, and she was a theater student and we talked and I learned from her that the final E in Tartuve was not pronounced. <laughs> and I also learned from her that um, 
uh, how to pronounce the name of the leading actor who I learned was René Abourgenois. That was tough to pick up on the, on the page. And so, uh, and it started and, and it was the most entertaining thing I had ever seen. I mean, he was athletic and brilliant and everybody in this huge ensemble was doing the same thing. Uh, the audience loved it. Um, I laughed and actually there is a little bit of melodrama in the play with a father separated from the son. I was having issues with my father then. Uh, and it actually made me cry uh, at one point when the father reconciles with the son and the rhymed couplets were, were so clever. Um, and what impressed me most was this large, large, large ensemble of people just really enjoying what they were doing. And, and I thought, I had this little flash in, in, in my mind, boy, that would be just really a fun thing to do. And uh, I was, uh, you know, sort of interested in vaguely arts things. It was, you know, the late 60s in San Francisco. Uh, and uh, music, you know, had been mostly what I did. I went to the Fillmore Auditorium every weekend in the Avalon Ballroom, uh, tried to play guitar in a band. And I was always the last person <laughs> to pick it up. And I never picked it up well. So, you know, if you're going to have a career in music, you should be the first guy in your garage band <laughs> to pick it up, not the last guy. Um, but I, I liked it so much that, and I was taking night school classes in community college. And so I actually arranged to, to take a drama class. Uh, and, you know, I, I actually was one of the first ones to pick it up when we were doing scenes uh, and things. And I felt quite comfortable and I had enough classes that I could get into the student rush my line myself. And I wound up seeing all of those plays uh, at, uh, at ACT and, uh, and eventually had saved enough money to actually go to a real college, uh, for my uh, last couple of years. And I, you know, to a, a school that, uh, San Jose state, which actually California state colleges to go to for, a, for theater with a, a lot of, you know, well-known grads and, uh, and that sort of took step by step by step, uh, you know, changed my entire life uh, and then put me on the, the path that, uh, you know, some 55 years later, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually telling the story to you. Uh, thank you, Joe. I love that. So I absolutely assumed that you are doing something that you had planned on doing since you were five years old. That was that, you know, that's how I pictured your the trajectory of your career. No, so no. How fascinating no, no, that that it, was not the case. No, no. I mean, you know, things can things happen to, to uh, you know, change your change your life. Uh, no, I, I, I thought, you know, I, I would find a trade. <laughs> that was <laughs> sort of the, wow. the, the path that I was on. Yeah. It's I love perfect, thinking. Oh, go, I'll go ahead, Jen. I was just going to say it's the perfect age to be exposed to that kind of company's work. 
Cause I, I, that's yeah. about the age I was when I decided I wanted to be a director. It was because I was on campus with American Repertory Theater and, and seeing the incredible directors and actor. I mean, it was the, the, the time when Andre Servan was in directing and Joan mm-hmm. Nicolaitis and Ann Bogart and Cherry Jones was performing and, and Tommy Dara and, and Steven Skybell. And you, you see all these folks working, you're like, oh, that would be fun. That would be incredible. Yeah. I just love thinking about the number of people, Joe, both in Madison and Milwaukee through all your years as artistic director who probably have stories a lot like yours because of the work that you brought to us. Oh, that um, would be nice. Pretty cool. Think of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know uh, uh, it was René Abrachinois was a particularly charismatic uh, actor. And I, I, I later just met him a few times and he was such a lovely guy. And, and it was only uh, maybe three years ago that uh, I was at the Utah Shakespeare Festival and his daughter, Tessa, was uh, was in the company of her party. I actually told her story and she looked across to me and she said, thank you. I have to tell you, I've heard that story 10,000 times from other people <laughs> because, you know, there was a sort of a legendary at the time. Uh, production and uh, you know it's really the beginning of, of you know American big on well, I should say it's the beginning of America more of a modern beginning I guess of of American big uh, big ensembles and uh, and what William Ball had sort of accomplished with the with the company really uh, really just, I think a lot of what we're doing certainly at Milwaukee Rep where Renee also worked. Uh, uh, you know are, are an outgrowth of uh, of the Guthrie and uh, an American conservatory for them. Thank you, Joe. What a great story. Yeah, it was fun. Wonderful. That is it for this episode of Theater Forward, a conversation about theater in Wisconsin, the Midwest, and America. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jen Uphoff Gray. I'm Julie Swenson. And I'm Mike Fisher. Our podcast is produced and these stories you're hearing are made possible by Scott Hayden. You can follow and share your thoughts with us on Facebook uh, and Twitter at Theater Forward, as always, with an ER. And if you enjoy this podcast, please don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you might tune in and be sure to leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. We're so grateful to have you listening and we will be back soon for another Theater Forward conversation.